Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. I'm lucky to be joined today by Benson Saulo, a trailblazing 32-year-old who's already had an extraordinary, interesting and diverse career across the social impact space, consulting, banking and finance, diplomacy and advocacy. Benson was recently appointed as the first Indigenous Consul General to the United States, so we're very fortunate to be speaking with him before he heads off to the US later in the year with his family. Thank you so much for joining me today, Benson. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm really pleased to be here. To kick things off, I was hoping you could tell us how you found Stage 4 lockdown here in Melbourne. Well, Stage 4 is definitely a lot harder, um, particularly going into lockdown for a second time. Um, But, you know, I've been quite fortunate. So we have an eight-month-old daughter and, um, you know, being able to work from home, I've, I've um, been able to, you know, see her grow and develop. And, you know, it's a very unique opportunity um, as a father to be able to spend so much time um, with a young. And so I've actually, as, as much as it has been quite difficult and um, particularly stage four and only being able to get outside, you know, for an hour a day um, for, for exercise and then also working from home. You know, within that is a there's, there's also the blessing of being able to spend time with my wife and um, an eight-month-old daughter. Her name's Anise, and she's uh, recently started crawling and she's teething like nobody's business, and uh, <laughs> it's all going on. Oh, yeah. Fantastic! And you're a keen cyclist. I don't imagine there'd be too much cycling going on now, especially in winter, but also with the five-kilometer radius that we've all got. That's true. Although we're in a quite fortunate space, we're in St Kilda, and um, within the five-kilometer radius, uh, we actually have Albert Park Lake. So, um, oh, you know, oh being able to do a, a couple of loops of Albert Park Lake, and and also I've been taking out the runners and and, uh, and getting out and uh, yeah on the sidewalks. Fantastic. Um, so, for our listeners not as familiar with you um, or your story, could you please provide a bit of a snapshot of your early life and story to date, from growing up in rural New South Wales in Tamworth? To moving to the big southern metropolis of Melbourne. Sure. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Tamworth, um, you know, country music capital of, of Australia. You know, although I, I reckon it still rivals Nashville, um, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, and I will be checking it out <laughs> to, to see how it compares. I'll be taking yeah. notes. Um, so, growing up in Tamworth was was fantastic. You know, that's where I did all, all my growing and, and all my schooling um, before moving away. Uh, I was quite fortunate to, um, you know. In, in my upbringing, my, my mum and dad ran the, the community and Aboriginal uh, church in town. Mm. So my father's a minister. And, uh, and so play, uh, faith always played a very strong role in our upbringing. And, um, and then also mix that with, um, with culture. So my mum is, is Aboriginal. So we're connected to the Wemba Wemba, Jadawa Jali, Wiragai and Gunditjmara nations of Western Victoria. And then on my father's side, he's from New Island province in Papua New Guinea. Um, you know, the, our, our family is very much still living in the traditional village up there. So culture plays a really strong role. So we have this really beautiful mix in our household of not only faith um, and, but then also the mix of, of culture is a, is a really strong foundation. So, um, you know, the, the strong values around respect and, um, you know, inclusion, uh, as well as kind of the, that sense of responsibility was always ingrained from a very young age. That's incredible. Um, we're also quite fortunate as well in, in Tamworth, um, which is Gomoroi country, um, you know, having such strong elders as, uh, as we're growing up. Um, you know, these were elders that were the cornerstones of our communities. They were the ones that, you know, started the first legal services as well as the first medical services and, you know, even, um, you know, played a role in setting up early childhood, uh, early childcare um, um, programs and, and businesses like Birali, which is a, the childcare yeah. centre in, in Tamworth. 
And uh, they used to tell us this story, and it was uh, this this idea of um, it was it was uh, linked to what's called the Warrumble, which is uh, the the Gomeroy word for the Milky Way, or actually it kind of translates more to this idea of the great river in the sky. Yeah. And uh, and so as we're growing up, we're told this story that that when we pass away, our spirit returns to the Warrumble, and uh, and we called home by the 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 fires that our ancestors lit by the great river in the sky, and it was the smoke that would call us home. And then we sit up there on the, the banks of the Warrumble and would reflect on the life that we've had, you know, the, those late night philosophical conversations, those really deep connections that we've had with friends and family and loved ones. And then when it's our time to return back to this cycle of, of life, we come in the form of shooting stars and, and lay within Mother Earth. Mm. And then when we're born, it's not so much this idea um, of, of conception. It's more around this idea that your spirit chooses who you're meant to be in the time that you're meant to exist. Mm. And, uh, and as a young person hearing this story, um, being told and, and almost weaved into, into our, you know, in our education as we're, as we're growing up, um, it really established this, this sense of, of purpose um, and this, almost this sense of um, an urgency of now, you know, that, that belief that you know, the people that we connect with in our, in our life are the people that are on the, sharing that same cycle. Uh, and it's actually up to us to to think about who's who's coming after us, and how do we prepare the world for for them to, um, you know, for for their moment, yeah. and um and so you know this this kind of uh, this upbringing of of faith and and upbringing of culture, um, for me really provided such a strong foundation to to then think about myself differently in regards to well what role do I play here you know with the time that I have, what kind of impact um, ultimately do I want to have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my, my life actually, um, you know, as I was growing up, you know, I wanted to be a, a pro skateboarder or play rugby for the Wallabies. Um, mm-hmm. I stopped growing at about grade nine. So, um, so yeah. the Wallabies was, was, were never going to take me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and actually, when I was 15, um, I actually started as a school-based trainee uh, at ANZ Bank. And so, um, you know, I was the third trainee to come for this particular program. And um, it meant that during year 11 and 12, while I was completing my HSC, I was also working one day a week at the bank as a bank teller, um, getting that hands-on experience. Um, but by the time I finished high school, I also finished with a, um, a certificate in business services and business finance as well, um, and which really kind of opened me up to what kind of possibilities. So finance for, or, you know, Participating in the financial sector for our people is often kind of been excluded. Um, you, know, you know, if you're coming from a place of poverty, then then money, you know, isn't something that you really think about or, or what happens with, with your money. And so, you know, when we, you know, moving into the bank and, um, you know, understanding finance and understanding transactions and, um, you know, and, and the role of finance um, in your life, that really kind of opened up possibilities as to well, where would I like to go in, in the future? Hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was actually, uh, from that point where I, as you know, kind of took that path into, into the finance sector for about seven years with ANZ Bank. Yeah. Amazing. So, and was that a move to Melbourne when you, when you shifted down South? And I suppose in making that move, how did you, um, keep connected to country as well? And that sort of rich cultural heritage and, and, and life that you spoke about quite poetically. Yeah, so I actually moved to, to Sydney. Um, right. So my, I have an older brother and older sister. And um, my older brother um, and, and my sister were both living in Sydney at the time. So there was already that natural kind of pull to, to make a move to, to Sydney. So I left home when I was about 17. I was kind of young youngish for, for my age um, going into, you know, high, into high school, into primary school. And, um, and so, you know, that was always the, 
you know, that's where I kind of wanted to be. Um, you know, it was, is where I kind of saw the opportunity to, to study. So I decided to start off my studies doing a Bachelor of Business Management and Marketing um, whilst also still working in the bank. And, um, and it was about six months into, into my studies that I decided, you know, I, I didn't really, it didn't really connect with me. I, I, I felt that it didn't really translate into the, the, the real world, um, for lack of a better term. And, um, and that there was also, you know, coming from the country, uh, you know, going to the school that I did, which was across the train tracks. Yeah. It was the, the school where majority of, um, you know, my high school friends either stayed in Tamworth or, or, or moved up the road to Armidale uni. Um, so it was a really close tight knit yeah. kind of community. So, um, you know, coming away from, you know, from Tamworth into Sydney, uh, I remember, and I still kind of describe that first six months living in Sydney as the loneliest time that I've ever ever had in my life, not being able to connect into new friends circles, kind of being a bit lost in, you know, in, in the big smoke. Isolating, and, um, yeah. yeah, it was very isolating at the time. And, um, and so I actually kind of dropped out, I dropped out of uni at that point. And, um, and, you know, we've always been set up if you're not studying, you know, you got to be doing something. And so working is what I really dove into. And so, you know, I spent four years living in Sydney. Um, when I was 19, I was promoted up to a business banking assistant manager. Um, and so dealing with companies from half a million up to 10 million. Um, again, this kind of links back to that hands-on experience um, that, you know, that, that was such an amazing opportunity because I was able to learn and connect and understand industries and businesses and, and, you know, work with real companies. Whereas, at that time when I was studying, I was learning about company A, B and C in the textbook. And so yeah. it kind of was missing that kind of that real world kind of translation. I know the um, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. To your point in regards to connecting with, with culture when I had moved away, you know, it was actually really difficult. Um, so firstly, Tamworth isn't, isn't my community. So it's whilst I grew up there, you know, my family's all from Western Victoria. Um, so there was already a sense of, you know, dislocation from, from, from my culture. Um, but at the same time, you know, the upbringing that I had, um, the, the family that I come from, you know, the connection also back up to Papua New Guinea, you know, it never felt like I was splitting in two. It never felt like, you know, I was needing to walk in, in these idea of the, the two worlds. Um, and the way that I kind of think of that is, you know, I don't, you know, closet my Aboriginality when I put on my suit and become the banker. You know, I don't closet my, my Aboriginality or leave that at home when I step out the front door and, and become, you know, the Benson, the Consul General or Benson, Benson, the, the public speaker. You know, this is, uh, you know, it's all part of me and it's all infused in, in one. Um, and so wherever I go, my culture follows me. And, uh, and that's the thing that's really kind of sustained me when, you know, I, I move into different circles in regards to, you know, in my professional career or move internationally or live overseas or travel. You know, the, the thing that is always part of me is, is actually my culture and my upbringing. Beautiful. And so another thing to culture and, and, and your upbringing and faith is, is your family. And you've got your own, a family of your own now with your wife, Kate, and a beautiful little girl who you mentioned earlier. I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about your family and what you love most about being a father and a husband. Such a good question. Um, you know, becoming becoming a father, um, you know, if it was it felt very daunting. You know, it it felt like um, a huge question mark, and and the um, you know the pregnancy of the birth wasn't the easiest. You know, we were um, really worried. We were told that we were to expect um, uh, our our daughter arriving at twenty six weeks, and uh, and as uh, twenty six weeks got closer. 
we got to 27 weeks, you know, we got to 28 weeks and, uh, and slowly we started moving through it. And, um, you know, there was, you know, my, my wife had to actually stop work quite early. She mm. wasn't, um, uh, you know, bed bound, um, but she had to kind of just take it easy really. Um, and just, keep the bun cooking <laughs> and um and and so anise her, her name um so her full name is anise ramor salo um ramor is actually a um it's connected up to my my father's land um so it's a nalik name which is a, the, the the language group um or the, the community up in uh in new island province um but it's actually a very old name um, so it's a name that's not really used widely. And so um, early on when we knew that um, Kate was pregnant, we end up going up to Papua New Guinea and uh, we're doing some customary work, but we end up sitting down with our family and we said to them, well, you know, we want to be able to have, if it's a daughter, we want to be able to carry the name um, of our family, um, which is, um, you know, the, the land and, and cultures passed down for the matri- matriarchal system. Right. So it was very important to have, um, you know, if we have a daughter to actually have a, um, a, a name linked to, to, um, you know, one of our aunties or, you know, or grandmothers, yeah, wow. um, because it's a, it ties her to that land or connects her back to that land. And it was actually one of our um, very old uncles and, um, and it took him a couple of days. So they, they talked about it and reflected on it and they came to us um, with this name and we said, and they said, um, we believe that your daughter's name should be Ramor. Yeah. And, um, and it's a very old auntie. It's actually his, who's my uncle, um, great uncle. Um, it's actually his great, great aunt, um, who's right. connected in our family. And so, so having that kind of that old name was really important, but the, the name Anise, um, or, or, you know, if it's also pronounced Anise, um, is, is actually the word grace, but it also translates into, um, God has shown favor. Mm. And, uh, and as we were getting past the 28 weeks and up to 30 weeks, um, we hadn't told my father what, um, you know, what, what the, the meaning of the name was. And, um, you know, he's, he lives up in the village and we hadn't told him about the, the meaning of it. And, uh, and as we got past the, the concerns or the issues of, of, of Anise coming early, um, dad said one time on the, on the, on a phone call, he said, Oh, it seems that God has shown favor, yeah, um, wow. which is such a, it's an odd turn of phrase as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and my, my wife, Kate nearly fell off the bed because she was like, <laughs> what? No, no one says that. And so, yeah. um, yeah, it kind of blew us away. Um, but you know, becoming a father, I was so nervous. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's, it's the most amazing thing, um, you know, to happen, you know, just the, just the rush of, you know, endorphins mixed with like fear and concern and, mm. you know, awe as well. Um, but, you know, in the process of, of becoming a father and then learning on the job of becoming a father, it's actually the only thing that I, only job in inverted commas that I've ever taken on where I haven't been crippled with anxiety of yeah. being a failure. Right. Um, mm. which is a very odd thing because it's one of the things that you can get very wrong. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it's been nice to just be so comfortable stepping into a new role and, um, you know, and for, you know, the relationship with my wife, you know, taking to that next level, um, you know, we've been together for you know 11 years, um, nearly mm. 12 years, but it just seems like another chapter. Yeah. Beautiful as it continues to unfold. That's really incredible. So I first became aware of you uh, through your work with the United Nations as Australian Youth Representative in 2011. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about that role and what it involved and what some of your favourite memories were from that year in 2011? 
Yeah, no worries. So every year, um, it's for a 12-month tenure um, that a, an individual is appointed um, the Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations. And it's, it's actually connected to two organisations. Well, one organisation in, in UN Youth, which is a, a national organisation, also has state-based chapters, um, and then also with uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And this is an international program where a number of countries will actually have youth representatives that are appointed or, or elected for their youth organisations. And, um, and they represent the youth of, of, of their countries uh, at the United Nations General Assembly, um, which happens every year. Um, I was fortunate to, to be appointed, as you said, um, the 2011 Australian Youth Rep. And um, that year, there was actually about 300 people that had applied. I was about 21 going on to 22 at the time. But, um, you know, under my belt, I had um, six years of working in a bank yeah, um, yeah. Where, where most people uh, you know, would be... Second year uni or something, right? Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Like so they're, they're mm. still kind of studying. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that, that role really requires... Um, you know, the professional to, to kind of step into it. Um, and, uh, and I think that was the kind of the skills that I was able to bring. Um, so already knowing about, you know, building relationships, um, all the way already kind of knowing about, you know, negotiations, um, you know, these are tools of the trade as a, as a banker. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that was, you know, that was an amazing kind of process to kind of go through. And then I remember the day that I got the phone call that I'd been appointed and I actually, I called my mum I called my folks house and my mum was out at the time, but I told my dad and he was over the moon. But the, the memory that really stands out for me was when I called my mum and uh, she was driving back um, from the shops. This is when they actually lived just outside of Mildura at this time. And, uh, and so she pulled over the car and, uh, and I told her and, uh, and she's, she's got really emotional and, and she got um, a bit teary. And she said, you know, growing up, you know, they didn't even want to know about us. Now, for my mum to say that, what that means is, you know, in 1967, when, you know, there was the, the referendum that you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were, were actually acknowledged as citizens in, in Australia, my mum was 11 years old when that yeah. happened. And, uh, and so she'd spent the majority of her formative years not only growing up in a tin hut with dirt floors on the outskirts of a small town called Bordertown in mm. South Australia, um, but she'd had that, almost that identity been removed or, or that statelessness or that mindset mm -hmm. of a statelessness. Um, and, uh, and so for me to call her as a 22 year old um, and say that, you know, I, I've been appointed to, to represent all Australian youth mm. um, at such a high level, um, you know, for her, she'd almost seen this, she'd just seen this come full circle in her lifetime. That's very you special. Know, it was incredibly special. And so that memory really sticks, sticks with me. And, and, and it's not only, you know, the sense of pride to, you know, the idea of, you know, making your parents proud, but it's also what that position represented in the scheme of, 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 of movements in the scheme of change um, in society. And yeah. so that, that was an incredible opportunity. And, and the year involved you sort of touring around Australia before actually heading to the, the General Assembly in New York and where you made a speech. Is that right? Yes, yeah, spot on. So I actually took about six months and travelled right around Australia. So I um, connected with over 6,000 people through face-to-face -face, um, you know, forums, workshops and, and programs, uh, and then a further 21,000 um, through online and social tools. And uh, there's a number of stories that kind of stick out um, for me, and I'd love to be able to share yeah. uh, one that uh, you know, I spoke about during one of 
during a speech that I delivered in, in Zurich in Switzerland um, as one of the most impactful moments in, uh, in, in my time as the youth rep. It was actually during a road trip from Alice Springs up to Darwin. Uh, and then I jumped on a small plane and went up to the Tiwi Islands. Um, and we were stopping at, at various schools along the way and running workshops with students. And we pulled up to a very small town called Elliot. And, and Elliot's just outside of um, a few kilometers, as in a few hundred kilometers um, outside of, uh, of, of Tennant Creek. And I remember we pulled up on this particularly hot day. You know, the sun was beaming down um, and it was quite a windy, so it was a dusty day. And I remember when this um, almost, a, I think it was a white Toyota Camry that was kind of almost red with dust. Mm. And I remember opening the door and stepping out and it was like someone had just grabbed a bowling ball, you know, the weight of a bowling ball yeah. and just sat it on my chest. Yeah. Like just ever so slightly just kind of sat on my chest. So this weight was just there. And um, we walked past the, the corner store and the corner store was covered with bars and then it had all, um, you know, alcohol kind of promotions on it. So it had like mm. um, you know, the four X or, or VB, or actually I think it was like NT draft or something like that yeah. kind of plastered on it and uh, walked up to the school and, we were able to, to sit in on a couple of lessons and, um, you know, there was kids in, in these classrooms that were, you know, equivalent to grade four sitting next to and, and learning from the same book um, as, a, as a young person who should be equivalent to grade eight. So yeah, wow. we've, all, we've all heard of composite classes, you know, when grade two and grade three kind of like put yeah. together. Um, this was kind of next level. So this is... Four you know, or five the, years apart, even longer, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so kind of that really you know, the basic education levels um, within this very small community. And uh, during recess, uh, the, the principal actually walked us around the school and um, as the kids were playing and he pointed out two young girls and one young boy. And he said to us, these three kids have the, the, the potential to be the first in their families, the first in their communities to actually graduate year 12 which hadn't, you know, no one had graduated from the school in the past seven years. He, mm. he shared with us earlier. And um, he said, these three have the potential to be the first in their families to, to graduate and break this cycle of disadvantage, which has gripped this town. And then he went on to explain that, you know, his tenure was, he was going to be a relief principal for six months. And he said, but that was three years ago. Mm. He goes, but they don't know it yet, but I'm actually here for them. And, uh, and it was at that moment where that bowling ball, that, that weight on my chest just started kind of lifting, you know, mm. you started feeling a little bit lighter, like it was Your layers that were going away. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that was actually, you know, upon reflection, and this is something that carried me through when I went to you know, other remote communities or went into youth detention centers or went to really, um, challenging spaces or disadvantaged spaces, um, was this idea of a spark. You know, the principal was the spark in that school. And, you know, no matter where I went, there was always one and, and often more, but there was always one person who was kind of that beacon of, of, of hope um, that believed in people that backed people. And, um, mm. and that was what gave me almost fortitude as I traveled around um, throughout that year. Incredible. So those sort of like deeply personal uh, and moving stories um, of severe disadvantage and inequity in Australian society. Um, a lot of that's sort of obviously contrasted to a lot of your work as well, where you are at diplomatic forums and, you know, in, in New York or Geneva or whatever, um, you know, where you've met people like world historical figures like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon. Um, so do you try to carry those stories that you just mentioned um, outside Tennant Creek 
um, with you when you kind of participate in that, I guess, more glitzy or you know, world of international diplomacy or advocacy as well? Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, these are the stories and these are the memories that, that keep you grounded. Um, and mm. with that, that knowledge, that deep knowledge that behind every policy is a person, uh, it's, it's often easy you know, it's easy to, easy to forget when you're, you know, working and operating in the ivory tower, um, yeah. you know, that, you know, the decisions that you're making actually have implications for, for real world impacts um, or real world, you know, people's lives. And so, um, you know, being able to gather these stories as I was traveling around and actually reflect on emotionally, you know, before I intellectualize it emotionally, what kind of impact this had because that's going to, is the thing that's going to stay with me. Um, and, uh, and then actually be able to bring them through. So when I was based in New York, I actually led negotiations on two resolutions. One was the, um, the rights of the child, uh, which had a focus on disability. Um, there was, there's a number of negotiations around the rights of the child, but the one that I was focused on was one with uh, focus on disability. And then the, the impacts of the global financial crisis on young people. And uh, that particular resolution looked at the school to work transitions, um, the, the, the role of education in preparing young people for the world that they'll be stepping out in. And then also, uh, which was relatively, you know, not a, a large focus for young people around um, entre entrepreneurship um, and transferable skills. And, um, and so, you know, drawing on my own experiences as a school-based trainee, um, the impact that, ha that had had on my life, but then also, you know, going back and reflecting on the numerous schools and, and students that I'd actually connected with around, you know, the, their concern and fear of, you know, stepping into the real world or, or, or the anxiety that comes with, you know, getting ready to graduate and not knowing if you're, you know, ready to go to university or, or if you want to work or should I move away from home? So these, so being able to, you know, connect real world challenges into those, you know, the, the you know, the, the halls of power in, yeah. you know, in, you know, in the United Nations or, or you know, even in, you know, in Canberra and in parliament. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's so important for us to, for decision makers or, or people that are kind of considered leaders to continually anchor themselves back into the experience of, of real people on the ground. So important, yeah. And to change back a bit, um, just carrying on with the thread of a few things you've spoken about as well in this interview, but you've spoken about or written about recently um, the pilgrimage that you and your wife took to the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Um, so I was wondering if you could reflect on this experience and some of the lessons learned along the way uh, and the importance of faith in your life to, to family, but also to your work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so it was in, in 2018, um, my wife and I, we made the decision that we'd actually watched the movie The Way. Um, mm. And I highly recommend watching this movie. And it actually kind of set us up for a bit of a falsehood, we were like, oh, yeah, this is going to be pretty easy. You know, they've got Martin Sheen. If Martin Sheen can can climb over the Pyrenees without, you know, breaking a sweat, I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Um, the Pyrenees is actually on day one when you do, um, when we started, which you, you start in, in France and you head over the Pyrenees. Man, that was tough. That was yeah. very tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I wasn't, you know, like Martin Sheen where he just kind of mops his brow ever so slightly. I was, I was down in water. I was sweating. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but it was, you know, that, that timing. So the timing was actually, you know, how these things kind of roll around. So um, my wife was just finishing up uh, working for, um, for a wonderful organization. My wife's a, um, a doctor in clinical and forensic psychology, and she focuses her work around refugees, but um, focus on torture and trauma, uh, responsiveness to trauma. 
and um, and so she was just finishing up. And you know, people talk about particularly in those really difficult or um, you know industries around burnout. And so we'd been talking for a number of months around you know that you know revitalizing or taking the time away to kind of regenerate. Um, and so after we watched this movie, we said, all right, let's let's put this on the list. We're we're going to go and walk the Camino de Santiago. Mm. And uh, and become pilgrims, um, which is you know this is the eight hundred kilometer Walking hike stick and everything you know yeah. oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's it and um and so and and I was also turning thirty at that time in in April so we set out in early April and uh, we actually completed in in thirty two days so we were averaging between um, twenty five to thirty two kilometers a day. Um, early on, it's it's incredibly tough, and uh, they actually say the Camino is broken up into three stages. You've got the the physical, uh, the mental, and finally the the spiritual. And uh, and as we're, you're kind of moving through, you know, across this beautiful land, um, you know, there's you know, you really do the as in the physicality. Um, you become very conditioned very fast because you're pulling on a a heavy pack, so we're carrying between um, seven to to nine kilos each. And, uh, you know, pulling that on and, and traversing, you know, up and down territory. Yep. And, uh, and then it's also the mental side where you, you, you suddenly find yourself at you know, 300 kilometers in and, uh, and knowing that you're about halfway, but you, you actually got a, a fair bit more to go and feeling ex- like exhausted, feeling drained, but then, you know, also feeling really fresh in the sense that you're walking through these really beautiful towns mm. you're, you're having these wonderful conversations with people that you're meeting along the way you're stopping into churches and, and taking the time out for yourself to reflect so it's this you know, it's this kind of tension of the the mental and physical exhaustion mixed with this this sense of beauty and awe of and what, rejuvenation as well through beautiful yeah. churches and beautiful people you meet along the way yeah absolutely it's actually the, the right word the rejuvenation um yeah. The, yeah of feeling that and um and and uh and then it moves into the stage where you know you're able to push through that and you you, you almost have the the end in sight and uh and you realize that you've well i, I realized at the time that i'd been focused on getting to the destination as opposed to actually enjoying the journey. And uh, there was a number of moments that, you know, I was glad to be able to walk it with Kate because she's the kind of person that takes the time. Um, and, uh, and so there's a number of moments where she would disappear and, uh, and I'd be looking for it and I'd, and, and I'd have to turn around and wait. And then she was like, Oh no, come this way. I found yeah. something over here. And it would, you know, it would, it would break my, my like fixation on, mm on the end goal, which is the, you know, the Compostela, you know, getting the document at the end yeah. of, um, of the walk. adventures and joys along the way. Right. Exactly. So that was a beautiful lesson um, right there. But then also, you know, when you get to the end, you know, 800 kilometers is such an achievement. It's, you know, such a distance right across the North of Spain. It's like Melbourne to Sydney basically, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah actually spot on. <laughs> it's a long way. Yeah. Oh and so there's that, that realization that, you know, you're, you're, you're strong enough to be able to do that. Your body is capable of incredible things, but then also, um, you know, with every single step that you're taking, it takes you closer to, to your goal. Hmm. And, and within that, there's a really beautiful lesson that, you know, you, you might not know. It's almost like, um, you know, there's a line from Martin Luther King. He said, you don't have to, you don't have to see the full staircase as long as you can take that first step. Hmm. And, uh, and I think the, the biggest challenge is not necessarily taking that first step, but then the follow up with that second step. And so for me, the, the lesson there was actually, you know, the second step is most important because then you're in motion. 
yeah. you know, and there's, there's no other way to go but forward. And, yeah. uh, and that was one of the great, one of the great reflections that I had in my, uh, during that time, because I was also feeling this tension around well, what next for me, you know, being the Australian youth rep, I'd, I'd run a, a national indigenous youth leadership Academy. Um, I was looking back at, you know, going into the corporate sector and, and thinking about, you know, the role of finance and investment in indigenous communities. But there's still that question mark, well, what's the bigger picture here? And, uh, and without knowing what that bigger picture is, being able to take that first and then followed up by that second step, you know, you, you were able to make things happen. Having faith in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned the National, uh, National Indigenous Youth Leadership Academy. Um, you have been extensively involved in the social impact space in Australia um, with a focus on Indigenous issues and, and diplomacy. So could you speak a bit about that and I suppose the importance that it's had over the last decade and a bit of your life? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that continually inspires me is, is being able to connect with young people. Um, and, and young people, apart from just the youthful enthusiasm um, and, and wonder, but the, the, particularly the, the young people that I love working with, uh, what I refer to as curious minds. Mm. Um, the, the reason why I love curiosity and being able to cultivate that in, in young people, because everyone's curious. Um, I think there's a, a moment in, in our life as we get older, we, we kind of kind of lose that and kind of look at the more world around kind of certainty. Um, but with curiosity is it allowed for um, kind of ambiguity as well. Mm-hmm. And always asking that question of why and how we're almost kind of programmed to, to stop asking the why and just kind of accept um, the what, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think the, the working with young people and being able to connect with curious minds, that was really the essence of, of Nyla, the National Indigenous Youth Leadership Academy was saying, you know, I want to surround myself with, with curious minds. I want to surround myself with young people that are asking those questions, the hows and the whys, but are also being able to view themselves differently in regards to the, the world around them. They're, they're almost being able to take an outsider's look on in on, on what's happening in their communities. Yeah. There's a beautiful line from Uturu Nunaku, who's an Aboriginal poet um, from up Kwandamuka country, which is North Stradbroke Island. And she had a wonderful poem called The Dawn Is At Hand. And uh, within that line, uh, within the, the last stanza, um, there's a line and it says, um, fringe dwellers no more. And, uh, and the reason why I love that, that particular line and, and kind of mix that with the idea of curiosity is because, you know, it's the, the, these curious minds that are kind of questioning, you know, how do we, you know, how do we influence or how do we inform or how do we shift and how do we shape things and then taking people from the outside or ideas from the outside and bring them into the mainstream or bring them into, you know, wider consciousness. And, um, and so with, with uh, the National Indigenous Youth Leadership Academy, um, we actually, in the space of two years, launched 10 youth-led social action campaigns on things that were around, on issues that were relating to mental health, suicide prevention, climate change, constitutional recognition, which was a, a big focus at that time, um, uh, the supporting uh, LGBTIQ young people. Um, and, you know, these are campaigns that were developed over you know, over the course of a week um, by young people. It's amazing what you do with, you know, setting a challenge for a young person and kind of going, you've got one week to create a national campaign. Here's the tools. This is how we're going to do it. Um, but it's actually up to you and handing, you know, the power essentially into the heads of young people to be able to create, create and lead. Um, it's amazing. Bold, bold and imaginative as well, you know. Spot on. Yeah. yeah. The, you know, and, you know, the way that I imagine these campaigns are not how they turned out. And, uh, and the, the way they turned out, um, you know, are far greater than the way I could have ever imagined it. 
yeah. because it's about young people speaking to other young people on issues that impact all young people, um, which is really powerful. And, uh, you know, and that, that really kind of influenced the way that I also think about being a good convener as well in, in regards to you know my life and my roles is how do I actually hold space to be able to bring people together to have a respectful informed you know debate or dialogue um, because ultimately what we're going to get to is is a place that's far greater than any single person could have imagined yeah. and um, you know and that's an underlying principle or approach that, that I have in in areas that I go uh, in places that I work but you know I, I do want to pick up the I guess the I'd like to pick up that question around kind of faith as well, yeah. as well, because, you know, as I was saying, you know, faith has played a strong role from my upbringing, um, you know, connecting with the, the Camino de Santiago in 2018 through to now. When I think about, you know, the role of faith, it also connects really strongly into a line that my father said to me when I was quite young. And he said to me, never think the world is not yours. Mm. And, uh, and, and, for me at that time, it kind of went over my head, but as you know, as I reflect, as I get older, you know, this idea that never think the world is not yours because of your skin color, because of your upbringing, because of your culture, because of your background, you know, everything in this life is afforded to you. If you, you know, approach it with the right mindset and, and take that step. Now the step itself is, is often the most scary thing. And, uh, and one of my values that, that I try to live up to is, is courage. And, and courage at its essence, the etymology of courage is to be wholehearted. And you can't be wholehearted without faith, I believe. And being able to step out into the unknown or step into spaces that, you know, have that you've been excluded from in the past or step into spaces that, that where there's people that don't look like you. Yeah. You know, it's actually stepping out into, into no man's land. It's stepping out in faith and, yeah. and just trusting, trusting that there's something there to, to catch a step. Could you, um, could you could you speak about that this kind of emergence or growth in the term of like um, black excellence or indigenous excellence uh, in the context of what you just spoke about but also um, I, I don't know it's something I've sort of witnessed over the last decade 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 and a half um, is the huge amount of young indigenous led organizations think about common ground now the um, aim it's Australian indi- indigenous mentoring experience obviously neither as well mm-hmm. seems like I don't know there's like a real um, big drive amongst young uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians uh, today in the last decade, especially about trying to take that next step, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it also is, is why it's so important to understand the history of movements as well, because there is you know, that, that notion of, you know, to be indigenous is to be, is, is excellence is to be excellent. Um, and, and black excellence. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's a number of organizations and movements that are really building on that. And this is, fantastic and i'll come back to that as to why it's so important and why it's um you know fantastic but you know going back you know if you go back into the civil rights movements you know there's a really beautiful address or sermon by martin luther king where he talks about black is beautiful and uh and he also has this really powerful line in regards to you know the the he said, until we can actually reach down into our own hearts and he's talking, you know, to his, to his community and, and sign our own emancipation proclamation, then we will never be free. And, uh, and you know, the way that I reflect on that, the way I think about that is actually, when do we give ourselves permission? When do we give ourselves permission as indigenous people or black people to be excellent? 
you know, yeah. uh, you know, and who gives us permission? If it's not ourselves, then who are we waiting for to give us permission? And what we are seeing, and, and rightly so in the last 10 years, particularly around the, the rec uh, reconciliation movement, but, you know, more recently in regards to the, the black excellence, um, you know, this is us and these are our people standing up and giving ourselves permission Mm. to to be their full selves to be their full excellent selves and uh and what we're going to see out of this is a a more bold a more confident um a, 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 a more collective or a, um, a a more connected um movement of of people of color and indigenous people um that are actually being a, that, that are actually shaping their own narratives uh and this is why it's it's such a incredible movement to be able to be a part of and, and to watch and to see how it's kind of moving um, because this is really what we're seeing now. We're going to see a huge shift in regards to, you know, how we define for ourselves what success is, um, how we define for ourselves, you know, what, what our culture, our, uh, you know, ever evolving culture is as a, as a collection, as a collective of, of cultures and, and, and people. Yeah. Stunning. So, to change tack a bit, you're off to Houston, Texas, to take up the role of Consul General later this year, as we've mentioned. Um, could you speak a bit about what the role involves and how do you feel about the significance of being the first Australian Indigenous Consul General, having just spoken about black excellence? You know, it's a, it is a huge honour to be the first Indigenous um, Consul General um, to the US, or anywhere in the world, but in the US and being based down in Houston. Um, Houston is such a significant place for you know that's the oil and gas industry but what's often overlooked is also around the renewables and also tech so we look at austin which is about two uh, sorry about two hours drive up the road from um uh, from houston and that's you know that's looking like it's going to be the next tech hub in the u.s um from an australian standpoint from from our standpoint in regards to austrade and the australian government you know, the U.S. plays an incredible, incredibly important role in regards to foreign direct investment. So being able to invest in, you know, the, the pros um, prosperity of, of Australia. So creating Australian jobs, but then also thought leadership um, and also our industries. Um, but then also trade and export. So the U.S. represent for a lot of our, you know, a lot of our businesses and exports is, you know, the, the frontier in regards to expansion for their own businesses and, and, and relationships and, 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 you know, growing their, their products and services internationally. So, you know, that, you know, Houston and the U S more broadly plays an incredible role um, for the, you know, the ongoing, ongoing prosperity of our nation. Yeah. Um, my particular role, which I'm very excited about, you know, touches on those aspects. So around, you know, attracting foreign and in, um, foreign investment. So looking at the investment arm, um, whilst being based in Houston, our export and our trade, but then also the element around public diplomacy mm -hmm. uh, as well. And public diplomacy is the area that I feel very comfortable um, in, in regards to building relationships, making those connections, um, you know, coming back to that idea of being a good convener, you know, that is absolutely the role that I, I hope to play when I do touch down in Houston and, uh, and providing in some cases, you know, a soft landing for, Australian businesses uh, or, um, you know, and Australians to be able to come into Houston, be able to connect with the right organisations, to be able to grow their, to grow their impact. Um, you know, I've already had the opportunity since since my announcement of, of the role to be able to connect with, um, with some of the First Nations groups, and this is something I'm really interested in because you know for the last five years I've been looking at how do you facilitate private investment into Indigenous businesses to be able to scale them 
but also to be able to scale their impact. So mm. in Australia, there's over 12,000 Indigenous businesses. Um, we know that they're more likely to employ other Indigenous people, more likely to train Indigenous staff, and also more likely to reinvest back into their community as well. Mm. So if I was to play out that kind of equation in regards to bringing, you know, finance into their businesses, being able to scale them, you know, it actually translates into greater impact as well. Yeah. And so um, for the last five years, we've been looking at well, what is the vehicle, what is the model to be able to facilitate that? And that conversation is actually, you know, very in line with what's happening in the US. Um, so in Houston, there's the, um, the Tunica Biloxi, um, uh, tribes of Louisiana. I'll also be looking across Louisiana and Oklahoma and Arkansas as well as yeah, Texas. Wow. And, um, you know, there's some really wonderful work that's being done there. And there's so many similarities in regards to, you know, the, you know, the social outcomes of, of our communities, um, the challenges, uh, relationship with governments and other partners. Um, but then also the, I think the unifier um, across our groups is actually the, the I guess, the vision that we have for our nations, um, but then also for the young people that are coming through to step up as the next leaders, the next elders, the next you know custodians of our culture. So there's a huge alignment there as well. Yeah, that's incredible. Is there a sense though in which by moving to the US you're flying uh, into the storm with the widespread civic unrest not really seen since I think the 60s, economic collapse and the devastating COVID-19 pandemic? Like are you sort of at all worried um, about the environment you're heading into? On a personal level, yeah. On a on a personal level, um, definitely in regards to um, the the pandemic, mm. uh, is is a is a huge worry. Um, you know, we just have to look at the um, the rates of infection, um, as well as the um, you know the unfortunate deaths that that are happening across the U.S. Um, and also globally, um, but obviously very relevant in uh, in in Houston that. You know, particularly down south, there is looking like it is going to be one of the, the epicenters um, in, in the US. So, you know, this is for, for, you know, myself and, you know, the safety of my family is paramount. Uh, and that's reflected in, in, in the work, the, the risk assessments that we're already doing in, in preparation. Uh, you know, Austrade is all is, you know, making sure that the safety of our, our teams internationally is front of mind for all of our, our teams that are across the world. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned around the, the political unrest. So that's yeah. something that we're, we're definitely following. Um, you know, we've got the election. Australian politics seem like an absolute sort of child's play, doesn't it? In comparison, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it is. It is um, yeah, it feels like worlds apart um, at, at this stage. Um, obviously, we've got the election coming up in November. So we'll be watching that very closely. Mm. Um, but at the same time, as we, we move, into, uh, move into the US and into Houston, you know, you know, I'm there to do a very specific job um, yeah. around our trade and investment. And when I think about our, you know, the relationships or the alliance between Australia and the US, you know, these things far outdate um, as in kind of outlast um, political cycles. Mm. So, you know, this yeah. is building on decades of, of um, public diplomacy and, and work that's been done to really strengthen and connect our nations. Um, and, you know, if I can play a little role in regards to being a good convener and being able to bring parties together um, and, and people together for informed, respectful discussion, mm. um, then that's the role that I really hope to play. Uh, in regards to the, the political makeup, um, Houston and Austin and um, Dallas, you know, these the major cities are typically more Democrat. Um, you know, they're, they're more Democrat leaning. Uh, and then 
Texas itself is made up of over 250 counties, which are predominantly um, Republican. Right. And so there is that, um, you know, that notion over the next few, few years that, you know, Texas itself may look and feel like more of a purple state. So kind of that, mm-hmm. that kind of mix between the two. Yeah. Um, obviously at the, at the moment, you know, these, it does feel like um, that, you know, the Democrats and Republican party are very, you know, are so fragmented. Um, but we also have to remember politics really plays a small role in our day-to-day life. And, uh, and I think this is an important piece to remember is that actually what is, um, what's more important is how do we act as a citizen? How do we act as a neighbor? Mm. You know, if, if politics plays a small role in our life, you know, then the majority of our, our, our life in regards to other people around us, you know, it's, it's the people that we, we, you know, our friends, it's our family, it's the people that we meet down the street. You know, it's, uh, you know, we, we need to be thinking back, well, who, yeah, who's my neighbour? Yeah, you know, or how can I be a better neighbour? Yeah, um, I actually think it's sort of a perfect. Um, you're the perfect person to be going uh, into such a place in in Houston because of obviously your incredible uh, history with, you know, coming from a rural background but growing up in an urban setting, um, bridging you know many many different cultures and and, and traditions as well in your own personal um, background. But um, yeah, you've got a perfect diplomat sort of uh, preparation, I think, for what will be no doubt a challenging, challenging role. But um, but looking forward, what kind of an impact do you hope to have, um, not just the next couple of years during your career in the States, um, but in public service and diplomacy uh, more broadly over the next few decades, if you want to even think that long? Yeah. Um, so uh, Australia is where I want to want to be able to, um, you know, have an impact and, and, and leave my mark. Um, and I think there's something really beautiful. And this is why my wife and I had been wanting to, to live internationally is there's something very special about stepping outside and, and of, of Australia and, and viewing it from the outside in. Yeah. Um, and just having that space as well um, to really kind of consider where, where do I want to be in the future? Um, you know, over the next few years, whilst in this role, I think I'm going to absolutely learn so much in regards to, you know, diplomacy you know the way that government works um you know how do you from translating legislation into action through to you know the you know the challenges of bureaucracy as well um you know i hope in the future being able to bring that back um into you know if i choose to go down the path of politics in the future or if i choose to go down the path of um you know going back into corporate or not-for-profit you know these are the kind of skills and knowledge that i'll be able to bring to to any space um and uh, it, uh, I was recently asked to, to write an article for a wonderful magazine called Dumbo Feather, mm. um, which is a social enterprise based down here in Melbourne. But I love this stuff, yeah. Yeah, they, they always write really beautiful pieces. And, um, and so I was asked to, to actually write a reflection around what does Australia look like in 20 years' time. And, uh, and the, the, the narrative, I was, I was actually really struggling because, as you know, when you kind of look around and, you know, being the fact that we're in, lockdown um 2.0 it's stage four um it's really in some days it's really hard to kind of look beyond that and uh and so uh, as i sat down to write this particular article i had to actually bring it home i I couldn't think about what the world would be like outside so i had to think of think closer to home and i was thinking 20 years you know my my daughter will be turning 20 you know um stepping out into the world you know um you know thinking about you know the mark that she'll she'll want to make and and leave on the world and uh and i kind of think about what kind of world do do i want her to inherit and then what kind of world do i want her to step into and 
you know, one of the issues that were that has been in discussions quite a lot under, you know, in the current conditions of lockdown is around the impacts of mental health on young people, you know, the, the rates of suicide, but then also um, something that was, you know, you know, Natasha Sotdespoia gave a wonderful presentation and, and speech at the National Press Club recently on the, the scourge of um, and the pandemic of, of gender-based violence as well, um, which is a very real um, and very serious issue that, that you know, is um, you know, impacting women, predominantly women, um, you know, across Australia, um, you know, on a weekly, daily basis. And so when I think about, you know, in 20 years' time, the world that I hope my daughter steps into is a world where we're actually able to address a lot of these things. And the way that I actually started thinking about this article was not about casting my minds forward. It was actually about starting from today, thinking about tomorrow. Beautiful. Um, first step. Yeah. It's the first step. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, our decisions that we make today will, will impact and, and create the future for tomorrow. And so if I want my daughter to, to believe in the, the same truth that my father told me in regards to never think the world is not yours. You know, I need to start today to ensure that the world that she inherits, um, inherits actually is a world that is hers mm. and that she can shape. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Finally, to wrap up the interview, uh, both you and Bob Hawke were born in Bordertown, South Australia. So, so I was wondering if politics is something you consider down the track. I think you've already mentioned that, but I just thought I'd ask it again. I love that you brought that up. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to share just a really brief story. Yeah. Um, so, so this is years ago. Um, and, you know, family stories, you know, there's truth and there's some kind of like question mark around family stories. And um, so story goes, my grandmother, she, she lived in Bordertown for all her life. Um, she passed away a few years ago, but she lived to, you know, 100 years old. Actually, no, she would stop me and say it was 106 months. So get that right, Benson. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so we had uh, you know, some family, an aunt and uncle, um, rock up to Bordertown wanting to track down Auntie Jessie, which is my mm-hmm. grandmother. And, um, and they didn't have her address. And so they thought, you know what, we'll just, we'll just hang out at the post office and you know, we'll, we'll see you know, brother or sister kind of walking down the main street, which is the main street's called Woolshed Street. And uh, as they're sitting there, they're kind of waiting and waiting there and they're not seeing too many people. And then suddenly, um, you know, the uncle, he like spies a fellow over the, over the hedge. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a brother. I'll, I'll go, go and say good day to him. And so he walks up and kind of jumps from behind the, uh, from behind the hedge. And it's the brass bust of, of Bob Hawke. <laughs> <That's sitting there. laughs> like, well, he's not going to help us. Um, <laughs> but uh, but this particular brass bust, um, it's, it's brilliant. It's, uh, he actually has half his nose missing. Because yeah. apparently, um, as urban legends go, that a, dis- disgruntled, a disgruntled farmer um, from Bordertown backed up his truck, wrapped a chain around Bob Hawke and kind of dragged him up Main Street. It sounds like a wild no, place, man. It's yeah, it's very wild. And, um, no, but the, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great that you mentioned that we're from the, the same town um, because I often think about this and, um, and thinking you know, coming back to that idea of those, those cycles that kind of go on in life. Um, mm. you know, these, these, you know, seemingly coincidental kind of happenings, mm. um, you know, for me to be born in border town. So my family lived up in Brisbane. My mum was born in border town and I'm the youngest and she wanted me born in border town. And, uh, and so we actually, you know, mum and dad and, and my older brother and sister drove down from Brisbane and apparently mum was actually kind of 
going into labor as we're, we're arriving in border town and needing to get there on time. Yeah. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. And, um, yeah. To, so I was actually born in, in border town and, um, and I'm the only one apart from a mum born in border town in our immediate family. Oh, and, uh, and so there's this really almost funny kind of curious kind of thing that, you know, if, if politics is the path that I want to go down, you know, is there something about border town? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's producing yeah. all the future pollies and prime ministers, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. All right. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Benson. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and um, yeah, all the very best to you and your family for the move to the U S no worries. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.